you would please turn to our scripture reading this morning, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 to 22. Again, our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 to 22. And our sermon passage this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 27. So we're going to take the whole chapter uh, this Lord's Day. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 27. The first, 1 Samuel 8, 10 to 22. Brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is the very word of God, the precious word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. It would be well for you, wise for you, of great benefit to you to give your full attention to God's word as it is now read. 1 Samuel 8, 10 to 22. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Now turning to... 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? 
And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat, uh, to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate, and the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your, your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a heavy, what a dark, what a dire passage we have just heard. And yet, O Lord, in so many ways it fulfills the dire warnings that you gave to your people when they demanded a king. But how much worse did it truly turn out to be? Lord, we are thankful that you are faithful to warn us. You're faithful to to tell us what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. But so often, just like the Israelites Before Saul was made king, we are headstrong and we heed only our own counsel. Our gracious God, this passage, the events in it had cataclysmic results, not only for David and for his household, but for all Israel. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would not shy away from the depravity that is on display in this passage done by the king. King David. We admit that it's difficult for us. We esteem David. We know that he is described by you yourself as a man after your own heart. And so how could such a man 
do such atrocious things. We pray for the wisdom of your spirit. We pray for his guidance. We pray that you'd help us to understand what your word is teaching us, not only about David, but also, dear Lord, about ourselves. But most importantly, and especially, please help us to understand what your word teaches us about you, who you are. So guide, Lord, the preaching of the word. Please bless the ones who hear. May you be glorified now as your word is preached. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Some of you have read Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Some of you have attempted to read him. He had a quite an output uh, in his prime. And one of the books that he wrote was called The Gulag Archipelago. And in that book, he described this line of good and evil that ran not through capitals, through states, through institutions, but ran through the heart of each and every human being. He was reluctant to describe one person as good and another person as bad or as evil. And I think that was in part because of his own experience in the Soviet gulags in Siberia, his own imprisonment. And he recognized that someone who could be described one moment as good, the very next could do something atrocious. While seeing his captors commit atrocities in one moment and the very next show kindness to the very people that they were committing atrocities against. Well, Andre Sue Peterson, you may recognize her from her work in World Magazine. In her book, which was a compilation of essays that she wrote for World, uh, in her book titled Won't Let You Go Unless You Bless Me, a collection of essays, she writes apropos of our passage this morning this. It's a, it's a longer quote. I'm going to read it um, uh, in total, so bear with me. She writes, nobody ever wakes up one morning and decides to become an adulteress. You must imagine, rather, Elijah's fist-sized cloud over Mount Carmel that swells into Ahab's mighty, mighty rainstorm. Or the quiet seed gestating in a woman before she even knows she's pregnant. Or perhaps a serpent's egg. There appears one day a thought that wasn't there before, a whisper in the heart of disappointment, discontentment, a vacuum where once abode gratitude. Add the chemistry of idleness and afternoon soaps, the unrelenting barrage of unthinkable suggestions that become suddenly thinkable, and your best friend's well-meant counsel, you deserve better than him. And she goes on to say in this essay, these are the things that lay behind the adulterous relationship. Well, James, in his letter, puts it a little more bluntly. He writes in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, What causes quarrels among you and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you, within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And all of this is to say that David didn't simply back into the heinous sin that he commits in this chapter by accident. Though that might not be readily apparent when reading through the chapter. But when you take the book as a whole, when you look at the chapter and all of its parts, and you take the book as a whole, you see that the author has given us clues throughout to see that David had set himself up for this mighty fall. 
And such is the case with human beings and their sin. We fall and immediately we look around to see if there's anybody else that we can blame. And we try to think that this particular fall, the sin that we commit that leads to that fall, that it rose up within us ex nihilo the moment before. When in reality, we have been arranging the stage in such a way all along for the exact events to occur. The reality is that 99% of the time, we are the sole proprietor of our sin. We are ultimately to blame for our own sin. We can't blame anyone else. And so the sin in our passage today is David's alone. The passage makes that clear in the final verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. As we work our way through the passage today, I would ask you to consider this thought. Christians, yes, Christians can descend to great depths in our sinfulness. The good news is that Jesus Christ descended to the hellish fires of God's wrath to save us. Let me say that again. Christians can descend to great depths in our sinfulness. The good news is that Jesus Christ descended to the hellish fires of God's wrath to save us. The passage is divided into three parts. The first, idle hands. The second, the craftiness of the king. And the third, collateral damage. So again, the first part of the sermon, idle hands. The second, the craftiness of the king. And the third, collateral damage. So let's look at the first section of the sermon today, idle hands. The author of 2 Samuel lets us know very early on in this chapter that all is not well with David. Something is not right. Verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. That's a key phrase there. And you remember from the passage that we read just before the sermon passage out of 1 Samuel 8, one of the reasons that the Israelites wanted to have a king was why? So that he could lead them in battle. Leaders have to lead from the front. Leaders can't lead from the rear. But that's exactly where David was. Now David had proven himself over many, many years to be a man of war. He truly was a warrior. He was a gifted and an amazing warrior. He was a tactician. He was a strategist. He knew how to carry out warfare. And it was specifically because of all of the blood that David had spilled in battle that the Lord would not let David build his temple that, that David had proposed. And so it's anomalous with the historical record about David as well as anomalous with the character of David revealed in Scripture that he did not go out to battle along with all of his servants and all Israel against the Ammonites. Now you remember that the, from last week that the reason for this very war in which David is refraining from participating is because of his indignation over the way that his emissaries to uh, the Ammonites were treated. We don't have to go back through all of the gory details of that, but you remember that this was an international incident. It was a declaration of war, the way that the son of Nahash, the new king, the way that he treated these emissaries, these ambassadors who had come. Why? To convey to the new king, King David's condolences for the death of his father. And so David's righteous, justifiable anger at the Ammonites 
is what got them into the very war that David is now sitting out. Now, there had been a lull in the battle since David and his men defeated the Syrians. Probably about six months had passed. There was a monsoon season that always happens. And so there's a time in the year, in the spring, when the kings would go out to battle. It's almost sport for them. It almost seems that way. The season has begun in April. And the kings go out. And so the, the men had come back to their homes until the spring, until the winter had passed, the rainy season was over, and it was expected that David would go back out with them. But David decides to leave this battle in the hands of his very capable general, Joab. And on the day in question, according to verse 2, David has just awakened from his afternoon siesta. It's a common practice among the people of Israel. It's not just uh, relegated to uh, people south of the border today. The siesta, that's a quite healthy practice. We probably ought to bring it back. But he's awakened from his afternoon nap, and he's pacing back and forth on the roof of his palace. That's the way that the original language puts it. He's pacing. You almost get the image of a lion at a zoo pacing back and forth in its enclosure on the prowl, searching for prey. And while he was walking on his roof, verse, roof, verse 2 says, it happened that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, I need you to notice a couple of things about this passage. If you're like me, you grew up with certain misconceptions about this passage, and you read it, you, you read it closely, and you begin to see things or realize that things you thought were there are not there. There's nothing in verse 2 about the woman, who's not named at this point, there's nothing in verse 2 about her bathing on the roof of her house. But that is the assumption of so many, and even some of the commentators that I read. Well, she's bathing on the roof of her house. And we don't understand that in modern day America. You don't bathe on the roof of your house. Why would she do such a thing? There's nothing in the passage that says she was on the roof of her house bathing. But that is a commonly held interpretation of this passage. There's no mention of her doing anything to, to seduce a would-be looker-on. In other words, she's not out there hoping to be seen. There's nothing in the passage that indicates that about her. There's no explicit mention of her being in a state of undress, though the verse does say that she was bathing, and so her being in undressed is implied, but at least one commentator said that she didn't necessarily have to be fully undressed in order to conduct the type of bathing she was conducting. Now, according to one scholar, the architectural reconstructions of the typical Israelite four-room house, that's a mouthful there, but th these reconstructions that have been done to, to sort of show us what it looked like, perhaps, in the days of, of David, they reveal an open courtyard where household residents probably bathed. And so... Bathsheba would have had a reasonable expectation of privacy to engage in what we find out in verse 4 was a ritual cleansing. This was something that she had to do to make herself pure after her monthly cycle had been finished. Now, David's palace was elevated above the Kidron Valley, where Uriah's and Bathsheba's house would have been, giving him a commanding view over the other houses in the valley. And this was, she was bathing at the normal time of day, early evening, when the sun was beginning to set. This was the time of day for ritual baths to take place, precisely for the privacy that time of day would have provided. And what's more, the custom of the day, there would have been an expectation 
This is the normal practice of people to go into their courtyards and conduct their ritual baths. And it's not an appropriate time for someone to go out on his roof and begin to to look down unless he has ulterior motives. David would have known that this was an inappropriate time for him to take a rooftop stroll. And so in the words of, of a different commentator, he finds himself far above her, which carries the connotation of his being in the position of a despot who is able to survey and choose as he pleases. They're modern-day despots. Fidel Castro, for instance, who engaged in similar types of things. And so David has all of the appearance here of being on the hunt. He's looking And again, we shouldn't infer that the description of Bathsheba being very beautiful means that she was doing anything to entice a potential peeping Tom. The description of her beauty merely provides the reason for why David had such a sudden strong interest in her. But let's make it clear. He was looking for a beautiful woman. And this interest that he has is immediately acted upon. Verse 3 says, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elion, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, it's possible, it's probable, that David didn't know Bathsheba. But he definitely knew her husband and her father. Both of these men were among David's mighty men. His elite platoon of fighting men is described in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Thirty men who were as close to David as brothers and two of her relatives, her husband and her father, are members of this elite platoon. David knew these men. David had been collecting wives for quite some time. And so his actions upon seeing Bathsheba aren't totally out of the blue. He was doing exactly what God warned the Israelites that kings were not to do back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 17. And he said, not, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. But that's exactly what David has been doing up to this point. Now, Eliam's membership, Bathsheba's father's membership in this fighting force is probably the reason that Bathsheba met Uriah in the first place. It's probably how he became her husband. And because there were so few men in that elite unit, David most definitely knew them, as we've said before. But 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34 also gives us one other key piece of information. Eliam, Bathsheba's father, is the son of Ahithophel. Who is Ahithophel? We find out in chapter 15 that Ahithophel is one of David's closest advisors. And Ahithophel will later turn against David. He will follow Absalom. Why would he do such a thing? Because of what David has done to his granddaughter. And so when David finds out that she is Eliam's daughter and hence Ahithophel's granddaughter as well as Uriah's wife, he should have ceased all activity directed at her. He never should have engaged in this kind of behavior in the first place. But here was his chance. God had provided him an out. Is not this Bathsheba? The daughter of Elion, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The Lord provided him an out, but he did not take it. We might even say he refused to take it, if that's not taking it too far. Instead, he took her, as verse 4 says. First, he sent, 
He sent his messengers to her, but his messengers aren't described as having taken, taken her. The passage describes David as taking her. And then she came to him, we read, and finally he lay with her. She is entirely passive in this. David takes all of the initiative. And even though verse 4 says that she came to him, it was not in her power to refuse her king, to refuse his summons. She wouldn't have known what his summons was for in the first place. She might naturally have assumed that it had something to do with her husband, or perhaps her father, or maybe even her grandfather. But once she's in the palace of the king, what does she do? How does she get away? What is her course of action? Now, interestingly, the Septuagint has a different reading, which instead says that David went into her and lay with her instead of her coming to him. Whether the Septuagint is the correct version or not, this is not what we would deem a consensual encounter in our day. And the Lord makes it very clear that all of the guilt of the sin is placed squarely on David's shoulders at the end of the chapter. It's David's sin. It's not Bathsheba's. Rather than being a temptress, the picture that chapter 11 paints of Bathsheba is, is one of a conscientious wife who's keeping herself pure for her husband. A woman who desires to righteously observe the ceremonial law by purifying herself after her menstrual cycle. The reason for the purification rite, this ritual bath, was so that after her menstrual cycle had ended seven days later, she would be able to engage in relations with her husband had he been with her. But he wasn't. And still, she seeks to be pure. Bathsheba is as innocent as a little lamb in this, which makes Nathan's parable in chapter 12 all the more pointed. She is a ewe lamb who has fallen prey to an alpha predator, King David. And she bears the brunt of David's sinfulness, at least initially when she finds out that she's pregnant. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, the craftiness of the king. Now, it would have been several weeks between the time that David took Bathsheba and when she realized she was pregnant. But when she finds out, verse 5 simply says, she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. This time she does the sending. She doesn't come to him. She sends a messenger to him to let him know she's pregnant. There's no way that it could be anyone else's child. And David immediately goes into damage control mode. What does he do? Does he reach out to Bathsheba? No, he sends word to Joab, who's fighting the Ammonites at Rabbah, 60 miles to the east, telling him to send Bathsheba's husband Uriah to him in Jerusalem. This probably would have been a, a fairly routine request. Were the circumstances different, it wouldn't have been unusual for David to call for one of his mighty men, one of these top 30 fighters in his force, to come back to him. But the king who has been making mischief, to put it probably in the most charitable terms, back home with his idle hands, requires the presence of one of his top fighting men in the middle of the war. Who does that? Who takes one of the top members of SEAL Team 6 out of the battle when the battle is waging to get him to come back home? David's hope is that Uriah will come back to Jerusalem have a sweet homecoming with his wife, and then assume, along with everyone else, that her pregnancy resulted from that reunion. What does Uriah do? First thing, he goes to the palace. Of course he does. The king has summoned him. And David asks Uriah about the war in verse 7. 
Notice that we don't even get Uriah's response to David's several questions at all. We don't hear what he says. It indicates that David is not interested in Uriah's answers. David doesn't really care what's going on with his men in his war 60 miles to the east at Rabbah. In verse 8, David tells Uriah to go down to his house and to wash his feet. That's a euphemism, the meaning of which would have been very clear to Uriah. But instead, verse 9 tells us that Uriah slept at the door of David's house with all the servants of his Lord. Uriah slept there. You might not have served in the military. You might not have been the recipient of a homecoming, a reunion kind of thing. But we understand that when someone's been away for a time, a fighting man has been away... And he comes home to his wife and his children. He, he embraces them. He loves them. And normal marital relations are resumed fairly quickly. That's just kind of a standard practice. We all, we all know it happens without really openly acknowledging it. That would be expected to happen here. Uriah's back home. He's been away for an indeterminate amount of time. Instead, what does he do? He doesn't even go to see his wife. He goes to see his king. At the king's command to go down to his house. He doesn't go down to his house. He sleeps by the door of his king's palace. And David was told about Uriah not going down to his house. And David asked him why in verse 10. And Uriah's answer in verse 11 should have cut David to the core. The ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then do, go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He is directly disobey, or disobeying a direct order of his king. He won't do it. Uriah is saying, all the fighting forces of Israel and Judah are on the field of battle sleeping in tents. The ark of the covenant is out there. Not in its place, not in the tabernacle here in Jerusalem. It's out there with all of the fighting men on the field of battle. And so Uriah can't even consider doing what David has told him to do. Now, ironically, in the past couple of chapters in which David showed so much hesed, so much covenant faithfulness, so much loyalty, it's Uriah now who is showing a deep loyalty here. Not only to God... And he is, he's showing that he is a believer, even though he's a Hittite, as we're so regularly reminded in this passage. He's showing loyalty to God, but also to his fellow soldiers and to David as well. Now, David's next scheme is to get Uriah drunk, hoping that inebriation will cause his self-discipline and his self-control to fade away. But even strong drink does not cause Uriah to, to abandon his duty. The passage says that the verse says he's drunk. David succeeds in getting him drunk, but he has such a strong sense of duty. He has such self-discipline and self-control that he will not. He will not do what he knows he ought not to do. And so again, that night, Uriah slept with the servants of David's house. Uriah shows himself worthy of the honor of being one of David's mighty men. And the next morning, David, knowing that he will never get Uriah to go down to his house, decides upon a far more heinous course of action to cover up his assault of Uriah's wife. And Uriah's sense of duty, the reason that he's such a reliable and trustworthy person, is one of the reasons that David chooses him to be the bearer of the letter which contains his death sentence. He put it into the hands of the best man he knew. 
He writes a letter to send to Joab. He tells Joab to put Uriah at the front of the most heated fighting and then draw back the rest of the troops so that Uriah will be all alone and will be killed by the enemy. And in order to make David's command happen, Joab has to put Uriah in the place where there would be valiant men fighting against them, as verse 16 says. Verse 17 says that the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some some of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. This man, the son of foreigners, who had proven himself to be more faithful than the Lord's, uh, to the Lord than Israel's king, was dead. He was killed by the crafty schemes of the king himself. What's interesting, if you look at, this is not an original thought with me, but one of the commentators that I read, if you look at the structure of 1 and 2 Samuel, what you'll see is a, is a chiastic or a chiastic structure of both. With Samuel, rather with Saul and then with David, what you see is their inauguration, their annunciation as king, and then this low point in their lives. And it's right at the center of of the cycle of each of these men. And this point in David's life, it maps perfectly onto the low point of Saul's. David is following in the footsteps of this first king of Israel. He's doing... Just what Saul did, perhaps even worse. And it will lead to his downfall, though not quite in the same degree as Saul's. Well, that brings us to the third section of the sermon, collateral damage. The battle that day that David had asked for was a disaster. And Joab is very concerned that David is going to be angry with him when he gets the butcher's bill. Joab called for a messenger, and in verse 19, he gives the messenger specific instructions about what to say to the king. In the event that the king becomes angry, when he hears the casualty report and begins to question him about specific points in the report, the messenger is to tell David about Uriah's death. Hopefully that's going to placate David, even though everything else was so bad. But listen to the hypothetical questions that Joab anticipates David will ask based on the messenger's report. This is not David actually asking these things. These are the things that that Joab is preparing the messenger to be ready to answer should David ask them. Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? What kind of dummy are you? Of course they're going to shoot from the wall if you get too close to the wall. Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you get so near the wall? These are the questions that that Joab is trying to prepare this messenger for. The questions that Joab anticipates David will ask reveal that he didn't do as David had instructed. You remember David's instructions were for for Joab and other men to go forward in the heat of the battle and those men to withdraw back. It would have been obvious what they were doing had they actually followed through with David's scheme. Again, it shows that something has gone on, something has happened with David. He's not thinking right, correctly. Instead of sending Uriah out with the other soldiers and the others withdrawing and leaving Uriah alone, he sends a number of men out to the field of battle. And in the heat of the battle, we learn later from the messenger's report to David, they come close to the wall. They follow them up. And in doing so, they leave themselves exposed to the withering fire of archers from above. He expects that David, Joab expects that David will remember Israel's military history when Abimelech died, when a woman pushed a millstone down from him or down upon him at Thebes. 
that took place in Judges chapter 9. And that, may, uh, that he may insist that jo- Joab should have known better as a result of military history. But Joab knows, though he may not know, he doesn't know exactly why, that the news of Uriah's death will placate the king. He knows there's something there. And he knows that as soon as David becomes enraged with anger, if he does, all the messenger needs to do is tell him about Uriah's death, and that will calm him down. Well, the messenger relates to King David at Joab's report, and not waiting for David to become angry, before he tells him, the messenger picks up on the fact that this key piece of information will placate the king. He doesn't give the king a chance to get angry. He just lunges right in, and Uriah the Hittite is dead also. But instead of becoming angry at Joab, David says in verse 25, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, throw it and encourage him. David becomes quite philosophical at the news of this great loss. It almost seems that Joab could have reported an utter defeat on the battlefield against the Ammonites with the loss of thousands of men. And as long as Uriah died in the midst of it, David would have been okay. Joab expects David to be angry about it because Joab is angry over the death of his men. But at this point, David only cares about one thing. He cares only about himself, and he believes he has won a major victory. Verse 26 says that when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And this word that's translated lamented in the ESV, it can also mean wails or laments with loud cries. Bathsheba is not unmoved by the death of her husband. She's deeply sorrowful. David may be unmoved, but Bathsheba is not. She's now a widow. But she doesn't know the truth of why or how her husband died. And it may be that she never found out. Did David ever come clean to her? We hope that he did. His repentance appears to be complete. But there's no record of it. And after an appropriate period of mourning, we're not told how long, Though seven days was customary, verse 27 says that David sent for Bathsheba and he brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. There's been no mention of the Lord in this chapter so far. There's an indirect mention of him when Uriah mentions the fact that the ark, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant, that it's out on the field of battle even though David is not. There's been no mention, direct mention of the Lord at all, but we get it there at the end of verse 27, at the end of the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. A more literal translation might be, but the thing that David had done was evil in the Lord's sight. Evil in the Lord's sight. The thing. Not that David and Bathsheba did. The thing that David had done The blame for the sins committed and recorded in this chapter, the blame falls squarely on David's shoulders. Yes, he's a man after God's own heart. This doesn't indict the Lord as if the Lord is somehow a murderer, a rapist, a conniver. David is a man after God's own heart, and yet David is still a fallen man like all of the rest of us. David is all too human. 
Isn't it amazing that a chapter like this ever made it into the Bible? If you need a little bit of proof, some evidence, something to to help you hold hold on to the fact that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and not some creation of man, look at this chapter. Because human nature is such that we would not put this in our history. We would seek to hide it away. And yet the Lord wants it in there. He wants us to see that this man after his own heart is still a human being. The more we understand about the depravity of David's thinking and then of his actions, the better we understand the amazing grace that saves a sinner like David. Now you might have been aware over the last couple of years that there has been a battle that's being waged over some who claim that David is a rapist and others who say, no way, no how, not possible. Scripture doesn't describe him as a rapist here. Later on, Scripture will describe uh, uh, one of the sons of David as a rapist, but not here. I think one of the reasons that it's hard for many Christians to think that David might be more than just an adulterer or a murderer, but that he might have uh, also been a rapist, is that he's a hero to us. And we want to think that we're like him or that we could at least be like him. He's posited to us that way or posed to us that way by children's storybook Bibles so often. He's a hero of the Old Testament. He's a hero of the faith. Look at him. Look at all the things he did by faith. He flung those stones at Goliath and Goliath fell down. And we want to think that we can be like David, that we can be one of the good guys. But the reality is that we are very much like David, but not so much in the heroic sense. There, but for the grace of God, go we. The ability for David to show covenant love and loyalty one moment and powerful lust which leads to murder the next is our ability to. That line runs through your heart and my heart. Be careful never to think that you could not do such and such a thing. Pride goes before the fall. And that's the pride that no doubt David exhibited. We are just as capable, left to our own devices, of descending into the depths of our own sinfulness. Christians can go there. That's why we need to sing hymns like in the hour of trial. Jesus, plead for me. Please don't allow me to give into the temptation that presents itself to me. Bathsheba did not tempt David. He tempted himself when he looked upon her. And he should have looked away. Just like David, we can descend into those depths if we are not careful. If left to our own sinfulness. Thankfully, brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who also descended. Not into depravity, not into sinfulness. He committed none of these things. He descended into utter humiliation in order to save sinners like David, sinners like us. 
we all have some repenting we need to do. Because we all have set the stage for our future downfall if the Lord sees fit not to restrain us from that evil. We need to look around ourselves and see how we've set the stage. And by God's grace, clear it. Repent, brothers and sisters. Repent of your sins. Because you are just as capable, and I am just as capable, we are just as capable of doing what David has done. The good news is that you do have a Savior who does plead for you. Who is actively interceding for you right now. Who does put his hand of restraint upon you. And keep you from indulging the worst of your desires. Praise God for that. Because that is good news indeed. He came for you. He came to you. And he came to save you. He died for you on the cross so that your sins, though they are as dark and evil as David's, could be washed so that you would become whiter than snow. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you that you saw fit to record this passage, though it is difficult for us. It's hard for us to hear. It's heavy. It's dark. For some, dear Lord, it might call to mind personal experiences of abuse. Lord, we are grateful that you are the God who hears our cries. We're grateful that you are the God who brings about justice. We're grateful, dear Lord, that you won't let heinous sin go unjudged. But we pray that you would restrain us from our own temptations, our own desires to sin. And we pray that by your spirit, you would make us more and more like our King, King Jesus. Who was so very unlike King David. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.